Johnson. Yes. Seeing Red the Pod, episode 40, where we always discuss the latest Nebraska issues. I'm Stephanie, and here with me today, as always, are Melody and April. Hey, ladies. How's it going? Hey. I have to say, it is Sunday, January 24th, when we're recording this pod. We are supposed to get record snow. Like, more snow, maybe even than in 1997 when they canceled Halloween. Oh, my God. I didn't even live here yet, and I still hear about that all the time. <laughs> I want you to know I brought my shovels inside of my house so that I can shovel myself out in the morning. Oh, my God. I think my shovels are outside. Oh, my God. Go out yeah, now. don't you don't, you don't want your shovels outside. Them. They need to be inside. <laughs> because the kids have been playing outside with the shovels. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you said that. Um, you better take okay. care of that. We have the best woman coming on the pod tonight her name is monica i she well this this um facebook team was live blogging about a department health and human services committee about the saint francis contract and they've like you know stolen a bunch of the, the taxpayer money that's supposed to go to children's services and it was a whole thing well then she came in and was putting in accurate comments to clarify some things that the team had said and some of the things maybe they got a little bit wrong or they didn't totally understand and she was adding context. And so she clearly knew what she was talking about. I reached out and asked her if she'd come talk mm-hmm. to you guys and me and she said she would love to. So we're about Yay. to learn about how child welfare services work in Nebraska. Excellent. Bring her on. All right. Let's bring her on. I'm looking forward to our next guest, Monica Gross, to talk about DHHS, Department of Health and Human Services, and how services for children are done in Nebraska. She's the current executive director of the Foster Care Review Office, and before that, served as interim CEO at PromiseShip, legal counsel at PromiseShip, and for DHHS itself. Welcome to the pod, Monica. Thank you, Melody. Thanks for having me. We are so pleased that you are here. Um, As some people may know, there was a hearing last week at the legislature, and I think anybody who watched it learned a lot about kind of a current situation happening with the service provider who provides a lot of services for children in Nebraska. And we know you are an expert in the field, which is quite complicated, quite a web. And so we thought, who better to ask that an expert to come on and explain kind of the ins and outs of all how all of this works, um, since it is a hot political topic in the legislature this session. And it's kind of an unsung one, you know, like people don't often, it's so, I feel like it's almost like climate change in a way that it's so complicated that people feel like if they're not a scientist, then they can't even start to understand it. But we know that's not true. And we know that it's possible to understand what's going on. It so is. We're glad you're here. Well, thank you. 
can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, where are you from? And what have you been doing for the past year to keep yourself situated? You know, those kind of things. Certainly. Um, well, I'm a native Nebraskan. I grew up in uh, Clarkson, Nebraska. I attended the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and graduated uh, with a bachelor's degree in political science. Um, then I attended law school at the University of San Diego in San Diego. After that, I started practicing law in the Albany, New York area, and uh, then moved to Northeast Georgia and practiced in Georgia for approximately seven years before coming back to Nebraska. I lived in Ord, Nebraska for about 12 years before moving to Omaha and uh, started working for Nebraska Families Collaborative, uh, which um, became known as Promise Ship later in Omaha in 2011 and uh, worked there until May of 2020 when I started uh, as executive director at the Foster Care Review Office. Uh, I've been working exclusively in child welfare for about 20 years. Uh, prior to um, joining the Department of Health and Human Services as one of their in-house uh, attorneys, I was in private practice. And as a private practice attorney, I did take court-appointed cases involving um, children and families, uh, juvenile court cases, as well as uh, criminal defense cases. So uh, I feel like I've worked in this area for most of my career. Um, and so if by expert, you mean someone who's done this for a very long time, uh, then I think I qualify. <laughs> that is definitely what I mean. Um, Stephanie, you have a little bit of experience in child welfare services in Nebraska, don't you? I do. I had uh, two foster daughters uh, back in um, on and off, I did respite care for them in the beginning. And then um, in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009. Um, so I have some experience with all of that. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for um, serving as a foster parent and caring for children. I think there's just, there are a few things more important than making sure the world is safe and wonderful and mm -hmm. nurturing for the children. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, just what's the point? It's just, what's the point of any of it if the future isn't bright for the children at all times, in all generations? It's like tree planting. We love tree planting. We love Arbor Day. But who cares? Because by the time this tree grows up, I probably won't even live in this house. But we do it because it matters. It matters. And we don't cut down trees because right. they're really Absolutely. hard to, you can't just grow a new tree, you know? Not it's in Nebraska. It's not easy. No, no. Um, okay. Uh, April, do you want to ask our first question? Yeah. Um, before we talk about services and any of that, can you tell us the kinds of reasons um, families and children might become eligible for service from DHHS? We know there's multiple services. Um, can you tell us some examples of that? Sure. Um, so when we refer to child welfare, what we're really talking about are families who have been referred to the Department of Health and Human Services um, for allegations of abuse or neglect. 
And the way that that um, process starts usually is with a call to the child abuse and neglect hotline. Um, the uh, hotline workers are all uh, DHHS workers and they will screen the call um, using an evidence-based tool. Um, if the call is determined to meet the criteria for child abuse or neglect, then um, the report will be referred to an initial assessment worker. And that's an investigative worker for the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, that particular function is not, um, not outsourced. Uh, DHHS handles all of those investigations in-house unless they refer it to law enforcement or um, you know, do the investigation in conjunction with law enforcement. Some um, reports are so serious that it needs to go to law enforcement. Um, but assuming that it's a report that does not need to be referred to law enforcement and will be investigated by DHHS, um, the majority of those reports are for um, neglect. And neglect can be um, a variety of things. It could refer to uh, lack of safe and stable housing. It could refer to um, um, unsafe housing. Uh, it could refer to lack of supervision of the children, um, failing to get them to school, uh, failing to take care of uh, medical needs, uh, not having, um, not having the um, basic necessities, food, clothing, shelter, running water, uh, heat, things like that. So uh, a lot of those neglect type uh, reports are um, oftentimes uh, circumstances of poverty. And uh, so the, those are, I would say the majority of the reports. Um, there could also be reports of physical abuse, inappropriate discipline, abandonment. There's also a category uh, uh, called dependency where maybe the child themselves has certain um, issues that the parents can't uh, address either because um, they can't afford whatever services are needed or uh, they're just overwhelmed uh, by the child's needs. And so that's, an, that's another category. Would those needs fall into like physical needs or mental health needs or would it be kind of a mix of both? What I was referring to would be more uh, mental health, behavioral uh, needs, things like that. Sometimes it's a, it's a medical need of physical, you know, uh, physical health need. All right. So now we know why families and children might kind of fall into this structure. So there have been partnerships between agencies, um, which are typically nonprofit and DHHS as far back as most people can remember, as, if I'm understanding the system correctly. So and, and then most of it, I think, has been handled by the state. But then in, and correct me if I'm wrong about any of these details, Monica, but and then 2009, the state contracted out a significant piece of 
who will handle the management of the welfare services for children and families. Um, and the same children and families that would have come into the system for all the things you described, um, either neglect or abuse, most of them being neglect. Can you talk about like what actually got outsourced um, and what were the reasons given at the time to make that move? Uh, so I'm going to go back a little bit. So when I was talking about the investigation that is then conducted by DHHS, when that investigation is completed, if it's determined that the family is in need of ongoing services or the children need to be removed from the home or, or most likely both, um, then that investigation is then closed, it's completed, and the case, the family is um, handed over to a, an ongoing case manager. That's what it's called, ongoing services. And so that's what we're talking about here uh, that was outsourced in 2009 was the ongoing services. And it was done statewide. Um, and the department has the state divided up geographically into what they call service areas. Uh, there's a Western, Central, Northern, Southeast, and Eastern service area. And each service area selected their own contractor or contractor. And so you had one contractor that was selected in the Western, Central, and Northern. Um, and that's geographically, that's most of the state. And then um, two contractors were selected in the Southeast service area and three contractors were selected in the Eastern service area. The Eastern service area consisting of Douglas and Sarpy counties, um, but approximately 45% of the child welfare population in the state. Which so, makes sense because about 45% of Nebraskans are in the Eastern part of the state. So that makes sense why the majority of the resources went that way. Yeah, I think that when we actually looked at the population, the child welfare population is, uh, the rate is a little bit higher in the Eastern service area than in the rest of the state. But it, um, it pretty much, you know, has varied between 40 and 45% of the child welfare population in the Eastern service area. So then, so that's, that's what was outsourced, those ongoing services. And what that consists of is um, if the children are placed in foster care, it's um, uh, the, the foster, you know, contracting with the foster care agencies to um, uh, recruit and retain those foster parents and support those foster homes. Um, making sure that the children's needs are met, that they're seeing the doctor, seeing the dentist, seeing the, um, the eye doctor, that they're enrolled in school, that they're um, continuing to attend school, that they're making progress in school, that they have their mental uh, and behavioral health needs. So if there's a need for uh, therapy, either individual therapy or family therapy, for the family. So the case manager is um, doing ongoing assessments, uh, visiting the family at least once a month, uh, facilitating family team meetings, 
preparing reports for the court and making recommendations to the court and um, just overall kind of overseeing everything that's going on in that case, um, determining, uh, making recommendations for what the goal should be. Usually if children are removed from the home, the goal is reunification of those children with the parents. And um, the, the department, and in this case, um, if it's a private agency that the department has contracted with, are required to make reasonable efforts to, um, um, to bring about reunification of the family. So uh, that reasonable efforts is something that the court determines every time they review the case. And then of course, there's the court process. So that's, that's separate but um, it's, it's an integral part of managing a child welfare case. So the court is gonna um, either, it, you know, if the parents admit the allegations in the petition, um, then the court will uh, order whatever services that uh, the judge determines needs to be uh, implemented in order to reunify the family. Um, if the parents don't choose to admit and want to contest the allegations in the petition, then there's a, a trial is held. Um, there's no jury involved. It's just a trial to the court. Um, and then assuming the court finds that the allegations are true, uh, then the court has jurisdiction of, of the child um, and the parents and then can then order those services. So it's kind of a three-step process in juvenile court. Once the family comes under the jurisdiction of the court and services are ordered, the court reviews the case at least every six months. And uh, at that time, they'll get an update from the department, from that ongoing caseworker, uh, about what services have been offered, what services have been um, attended, how the attendance has been, how the progress has been, and um, how visits are going, how therapy is going, and uh, whether or not the family is ready to either be reunified, um, to liberalize visits, increase visits, you know, whatever stage of the process they're at. Um, and in most cases, um, the family will reunify. Um, most, most cases successfully reunify. Um, for those cases that don't reunify, um, the court could terminate the parent's parental rights and the child would be legally free for adoption at that point. And then um, uh, many times foster parents adopt, uh, many times uh, relatives adopt children, and there are still a lot of children in foster care um, who are legally free for adoption who are not adopted. So I have a question. So you said that um, that's a really good overview and helps me actually a lot to know some of that. Um, why was the, why was the decision made to, um, I, I guess, make it private with these private agencies and split them all up instead of being under one? So um, in 2008, uh, um, the state of Nebraska had its round two ch uh, child and family services review, federal review. 
and the outcome um, the the outcome was not good. Um, there were lots of issues that were identified, and it, it, I think um, in an effort to try to um, make it better for the kids and families and to improve outcomes, uh, a decision was made to um, to outsource the uh, foster care system, the the ongoing services. And uh, I know at the time, the director of children and family services was looking to the state of Florida where they had uh, been doing privatized child welfare for, for a while. Um, and the state of Kansas to our South had been doing it for a number of years. Um, so I think there was an effort to um, try to replicate what was being done in those areas because it was viewed at that time as, as generally successful or better um, outcomes were improving uh, under the, um, in Florida, they call it community-based care. Um, and so uh, I, I think there was also the thought that perhaps in the long term that this would save money. And so I think that that was also a part of it which was unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't surprise me that that would be part of their decision, but I guess I'm a true outsider, but how did they anticipate saving money? Like how does privatizing save money? I don't know if I have, I don't know if I have an answer to that. I think the, this is more of a long-term view of things, but um, if you're able to serve more children at home um, with their family and not remove the children from the home, but serve the family in their own family home um, and prevent children from entering the foster care system, you will eventually save money. So it kind of like getting involved with these families sooner before right. it escalates to the need for a child to be removed. Right, right. And the okay. idea was that perhaps privatization could help with that? Yes, yeah, yeah. I think that was the idea that um, the private agencies could be more nimble, um, mm -hmm. could uh, be more innovative and do some things differently. Um, again, I, I don't think that that was... Um, realized because um well uh there was a there was a report done in 2019 by the Stephen group uh that the mm -hmm. department of health and human services commissioned that report and oh um, i have read that report a little bit and i will yeah. link it in the show notes and other people it's pretty dry but there's a good executive summary on the first couple pages. So you don't actually like need to read the whole thing unless you love reading about how government agencies work. Um, but I'll link it in the show notes, but go ahead, Monica. But they do, they do discuss in that report how that, um, that hope was never realized because um, the, because the relationship between DHHS and uh, the private contractor was not um, was not always productive. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a positive relationship. 
and the um, the contract um, monitoring was more about compliance than it was about innovation. And uh, so the innovation was not really, and there were no incentives built into the contract um, to incentivize uh, innovation, even though, you know, at, at Promise Ship, um, we did try to innovate as much as we could. Yeah, and you know, in the Stephen Group report, they did not dance around. They said basically exactly what you said. It says in their executive summary um, through, and this is, so we get the timeline correct. The Stevens Group report was analyzing the move of Nebraska. So in 2009, Nebraska privatized a, a big chunk of the case management. And then in 2019, they had a third party analyze how it's been going for the past 10 years, the group comes back and says, the lack of a shared vision for outsourcing generally between the vendor and the state has undermined the opportunity to capture the value of the outsource model. The lack of flexibility has undermined the prospect of innovation. Um, the lack of stability has led to short-term thinking that undercuts a critical component of outsourcing. So this is what the third party that the state of Nebraska hired says to the state of Nebraska that, you know, you need to work together with your vendor and, and create ways to be flexible, innovative, and think long-term and big picture. So then right after that, in 2019, the same year this report is issued, Nebraska does a bid process to look at vendors, which I think they are mandated to look at bids every so often. So maybe 2019 was the year, maybe not, I'm not sure. Um, but there was a bid contracting process. What does that mean when vendors, agencies are bidding for something? Like what, what do they have to do? Well, uh, in, in this case, um, the department put out a request for proposal and that is a document. They use the purchasing division of the Department of Administrative Services to kind of help process, help through the process. And the request for proposal, it's, it's a rather lengthy document and it includes um, instructions on how to submit a proposal, what, uh, the, what the department was looking for, um, what the requirements uh, were. So if you're gonna submit a proposal, you're required to include the following. And there were pages and pages and pages of requirements. It's very detailed. And, um, and then there's some forms that they include that you have to fill out and sign. Um, the proposal is, is generally a very lengthy document. Uh, and it includes the technical proposal, which is um, kind of addresses each of the requirements in the request for proposal and how you're going to meet those requirements. There's uh, a section on your corporate history and corporate background and financial um, information. Uh, they wanna know uh, who is going to be in charge of this project and they want uh, resumes of the people who are in charge. And uh, then they want a kind of a staffing um, 
you know, what's your staffing plan for, uh, for this proposal? Um, and, and they just, there are just lots of questions to answer. Um, and so it ends up being, you know, a two or 300 page document um, that's in a binder and it's tabbed and um, it's just a very um, professional looking uh, document. And then there's a, a separate from that is the cost proposal where they ask you to submit your bid, how you know, uh, uh, your, your dollar bid. And in this case, they ask for an annual for each year of the contract, what you were bidding. And, and then that was further broken down on um, what, you're, what you're going to spend on salaries, what you're gonna spend on services, et cetera. Um, that gets submitted to the Department of Administrative Services uh, on the due date. And then there's a review process uh, that DHHS goes through. And at the end of the review process, uh, they, they select, they announce an intent to award. They could also not award um, and, and just cancel the procurement. Um, they could reject all the bids. They have different options. In this case, they selected St. Francis Ministries uh, because they had the highest score and they had the highest score because they submitted the lowest cost bid. Okay, interesting. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just gonna say a bunch of words and we'll see because <laughs> okay. I've been doing some research. So uh, to prepare for you coming on tonight uh, and so as I understand it, so we go back to this timeline, 2009, Nebraska decides to outsource um, case management. And in the Eastern side of the state, we have several different organizations and some of them fail and some of them merge. And we end up with this organization called the Nebraska Family Collaborative, which then ends up being called Promise Ship which represents, and Promise Ship represents decades and decades of child welfare services in the state of Nebraska, specifically in like the Omaha, Lincoln, eastern part of Nebraska region, right? Right, so I understand right. That right. Yeah, okay. so I just want to clarify something. Uh, Nebraska Families Collaborative was a corporation that, that was formed in 2009 for the purpose of bidding on this contract. Got so it, it didn't come together later. It was it was formed, uh, and it was a partnership, um, or a, you know, it was a. Uh, they were all members, I guess. Uh, it was a membership based um, corporation, nonprofit corporation, composed of Boys Town, Child Saving Institute, Heartland Family Service, Omni uh, Behavioral Health, and uh, the Nebraska Family Support. And, so, um, which many of those organizations we've all heard of, and I mean, like Boys Town, that is internationally, we've all heard of them. I think and, I've heard of every one of those. <laughs> yeah, okay, and they're, by and large, mostly all still running they are. services in the state of Nebraska. They are. Okay. Okay, that's, so then we took these, this well-known group of organizations and then in 2019 we hired a third party that said you need to work with your vendor and create a shared vision and you need to figure out how to be flexible and innovative 
And in response, Nebraska went with the lowest bidder for, they picked St. Francis Ministries, who is a Kansas-based, and I've never heard of them before. I don't, they don't have the brand recognition in our state, which also says to me, they don't have the relationships with the whole network of services in our state. Is That's just my kind of understanding. I think but they were be- the lowest bidder and they won the contract and they were the lowest by like millions of dollars. Am I right? Yes. Um, their, their total bid was about 60% of uh, the promise ship bid. Uh, like so that good. just makes alarm bells for me. Like mm-hmm. nothing you get 60%, 40% off without cutting something vital. <laughs> you get what yeah. you pay for a little bit. I mean, that would say to me, we were accusing promise ship of overcharging by about 40%. And I just, that, you know, that would seem to require a legislative research. Like if we really thought that about a vendor. Um, Well, DHHS had 10 years of data from promise ship. Um, And over the last uh, two or three years of the contract, they really increased their um, their uh, financial oversight. They really kind of beefed up their um, their um, capacity to provide financial oversight. So mm-hmm. they knew they knew very well what the costs were. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not a secret. And in fact, uh, as part of the procurement process, uh, we were asked to provide to DHH, DHHS our, um, when I say we, I'm talking about promise ship, was required to uh, provide all of our expenses, um, all of our, for services. And that was uh, posted on the RFP website. So any potential bidder could see what our expenditures were. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were f- for the previous fiscal year. So there were no secrets. <laughs> I have an, uh, a follow-up question and maybe there's nothing here, but is it unusual that the new agency is has a religious affiliation? Like, I don't know, it bothers me. I, I worry about connections with certain religions, not saying that they're gonna, you know, do any sort of indoctrination or anything like that, but I just like to keep, you know, church and state separate. (laughs) Is that unusual? I don't think it's unusual. So here in Nebraska, um, you know, we have Boys Town, uh, which is a faith-based organization. We have Lutheran Family Services. Um, You know, they do great work uh, with, with a lot of different communities and there's Catholic charities um, there, you know, they, I'm not sure if they have any contracts with the state currently, but um, they do they do provide a lot of services as well. Um, so I don't know that it's problematic. You have to agree to um, lots of things uh, in this agreement that and and you know part of which is you know that you won't discriminate. Um, so you know I think there are uh, contractually there are you know it's no different. Um, than if it would be a a non-faith-based organization. You know, the the contractual provisions are all the same. 
Well, that's reassuring. I guess why does why do religious organizations get into this line of work? I don't, I don't, you know. Um, I think it's you know probably you know not not to speak for them, but I think it's probably that they're mission based and uh, it's part of the mission to um, care for the widow and the orphan. You know, I think that's that's just part of what faith-based organizations believe in. And, and you know, you can raise money from donors. Someone needs to, to care for um, children and, and um, other vulnerable populations. And so I think nonprofits and charities have done that for a very long time. Yeah, I think there is a historical context as well for the church being heavily involved with um, family welfare services. I think that is, and I guess I never thought about that from the donor perspective too. Like if you need to pass the hat, you just literally have people sitting there every week to say, all right, it's time to, we got to fund the initiative where other nonprofits maybe don't have that same group of people sitting there every day. They can ping for dollars. So I never thought about that donor piece. That's interesting to think about. Okay, so now we know, you know, the state of Nebraska is with St. Francis Ministries, and that is 2019 to stay with our timeline. And then in 2020, so this is 12, around 12 months-ish, there is a whistleblower and they accuse St. Francis Ministry of serious financial mismanagement. And also, as the investigation into that whistleblower complaint comes out, we also discover that promise or not promise that St. Francis Ministry has massively underbudgeted, and also that the state of Nebraska put a cap on services. So, so just to, for like the listeners, what that means is Nebraska and St. Francis Ministries went into a contract where Nebraska said, we will send you as many case files as we want and we will only pay you X amount of dollars. No, And so no matter what it costs you, too bad. And St. Francis Ministries was like, yeah, that seems, we'll, we'll sign into that. And so then they did. And one year into the contract, we find out there is serious financial abuse and um, they've hit their max, but we still have families that need services. And so what do we do now? And that is kind of the spirit of what that legislative hearing was um, last week. And the date of that hearing was January 22nd of 2021, if anybody ever wants to go back to the transcript of that. Um, So that was the spirit of that. So what happens, and obviously we don't know immediately what, we don't know exactly what will happen, but what is the process of what will happen? Like, what is the legislature? What is their role? What is DHHS's role? What is St. Francis Ministry's role? Um, Like just what, what steps happen next? Um, so before I answer that, I just want to clarify one thing. The, the whistleblower complaint um, was in the state of Kansas, and it was made to the state of Kansas uh, to their whatever their equivalent to 
our Department of Health and Human Services. So it, the, the whistleblower complaint did not originate in Nebraska and was not, did not pertain to the Nebraska operation of St. Francis, um, you know, at least not that we know of. Uh, it was to their corporate headquarters, which is in Salina, Kansas. And um, so as to what happens now, um, the investigation in Kansas is still ongoing into the financial mismanagement. Um, St. Francis had their own um, third party investigation take place. And, and I think that has been completed. It sounds like they're still in the process of completing an audit. Uh, and those audits, those financial audits can take a while. They can take several months. Um, and they, St. Francis has operations, I think they said in six states. So it, it might take a while to complete that. Um, so what I heard at the briefing last Friday was that um, St. Francis Ministries needs to have a new contract or this additional funding by next Friday, by January 29th, or uh, they were going to be out of money in February. They, in other words, they will have spent the cap of the contract. And to be sure, um, just so, so your listeners understand, Promise Ships contracts had a cap too. They, they, they always have had a cap. Um, and it's a no, re, no eject, no reject contract, meaning you have to accept all, any, any and all referrals that the department sends. But it can only be in the Eastern Service area. Seems completely yeah. wild to me. I mean, just wild that it works that way, that the state gets to demand as part of their contract, we may send you more work than we're going to pay for. Too bad. That's the cost of business with the state of Nebraska. Like, I can't, that, like, I can't wrap my head so, around that. So, when so it's, it's, when a, it's an at-risk contract. So, yeah, so the, the contractor is uh, bearing the risk. Uh, yeah. In this case, yeah. When does the contract go through? Uh, it's a it's a five year contract. I believe it goes through June thirtieth of twenty twenty four. And they're out of money in February of twenty twenty one for or this fiscal year. When does this fiscal year end? Is what June thirtieth is okay. the end of the state fiscal year. So it seems like they might have underbid it by about forty percent. <laughs> that's good math stephanie that is yeah that is about 40 percent of the year well it's it's ironic that their monthly costs seem to be about the same as uh promise ships were um so are they they're doing all of the eastern service area then the job of what three contractors were doing 10 years ago yes and yes how have we, what have we seen happen with outcomes over 10 years? And I'm sure we have no idea what's happened over the last year because information and bureaucracy don't work that way, but. Well, so the first few years, first two or three years, I'd say were very chaotic between 2009 and 2012. I, I can um, say yes. And so the, um, we didn't really talk about this, but uh, four out of the five contractors across the state either went out of business or their, had their contracts terminated or um, gave notice and turned, you know, um, ended their contract. So wow. the only contractor that was left in 2012 
by March of 2012 was Nebraska Families Collaborative, which later became Promise Ship. And um, so that was kind of the beginning of stabilizing the system. It, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a stable system, I would say, for 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 three years there, um, and then um, then there's just a lot of moving parts and a lot of things to focus on, but um, I would say that outcomes did get better, uh, outcomes improved. Um, at some point, I want to say maybe 2015, 2016. Um, the Eastern Service Area had met all of the CFSR round two measures. Um, and what that means is the measures that the federal government put in place back in 2008, um, when we had that review, that second round review, those measures were all met for the first time ever uh, in the Eastern Service Area. And so uh, therefore as a state, uh, state as a whole, we were meeting those measures. That's just about the same time that the new measures, the round three measures came out. And so um, we were doing, uh, we continued to improve on those measures as well. And I think um, I'm not quite an expert on that, how many measures there were, there were either six or seven. And I think we were meeting all but one. Uh, Promise Ship was meeting all but one of those by the time our contract ended. That is um, like incredible when you just like get the scope. I hope, I hope people kind of just have a sense of kind of what happened when and why. April, Stephanie, do you, where are you guys at? Do you feel like you have a good understanding of what is going on in our state right now? No, but I have a better understanding of what's going on with this. Fair. <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. I have, I have a question, thinking. Monica. Could you tell us about how many families or uh, children the state serves in a year? Do you know about that number? Um, actually, I did pull some, I pulled some reports uh, after the briefing on Friday. So the department, all of these reports you can get on the department's website. They have a report called the uh, CFS Point in Time Dashboard, and it shows the number of uh, children in out-of-home care by service area and then for the state as a whole. So um, for the state as a whole, uh, this would have been as of January 19th, there were um, 3,149 children in out-of-home care and uh, 1,520 children in home. So they were children who were at home receiving services. Um, in the Eastern service area, there were uh, 1,480 children in out-of-home care and 448 children in home. And then there's another category of cases that they call alternative response that uh, are not handled by St. Francis Ministries. Those are handled by the department. So there's another 412 children that are receiving services from the state that would be, I would consider them part of the child welfare system. They appear on this, um, on this report. 
I think the only other question I can think of is I've learned so much. I love your whole global <laughs> overview. Like you are like the person to talk to. Is our service or our model or our the way we're doing things much different than other states? You know, I haven't experienced uh, child welfare in a lot of states. I, I really don't think so because the, the federal government um, publishes regulations and has something called the child welfare, um, uh, child welfare um, manual uh, that kind of tries to standardize practices and they tie a lot of the requirements to federal funding so um, in order to be eligible to receive federal funding, you have to do certain things a certain way, you have to offer certain services and that kind of thing. Um, so the state has to offer foster care services, for example, in order to receive federal funding for foster care. They have to provide training for their staff and the, the private contractors um, like St. Francis Ministries, um, like Promise Ship, have to uh, provide the same training for their case managers as the department does. So a lot of these kinds of requirements are tied to federal funding, as most things are. And I think for, you know, if people don't know that, that is actually one of the ways the federal government has a lot of influence and power over things in the state. The federal government can't actually require a lot of things they would like to require. They do have, however, what is called the power of the purse. And so like things in schools, in food programs, in children's programs, in road programs, in job programs, all kinds of programming that states offer states can fully fund them themselves and ignore federal guidelines, but they don't want to because they want the federal dollars. And so they often will, um, they often just go with the federal guidelines to make sure that they get the federal money back into their state because people get really, really mad when they pay their federal taxes and see all the other states get federal money back, but you don't get it in your state. So it's really physically, it's politically really hard to ignore federal guidelines um, because the power of the purse is so powerful. Right. And so what we've seen is when the federal government um, <clears throat> enacts new legislation uh, related to child welfare, then uh, within a year or two after, you'll see the legislature um, pass some implementing legislation here so that it would mirror the federal requirements. Hmm. And I think that works that way in most states um, so that uh, a lot of the things, um, for example, parental rights can be terminated if a child has been in out-of-home care for 15 of the last 22 months. That's federal and uh, every state has at least that requirement. And you have to have that in order to, um, in order to get your federal funding. So um, there are other requirements as well, but uh, that's just an example. And um, in 2018, the Congress passed the Family First Pre uh, Prevention Services Act um, which for the first time allows some of that federal funding to be used for prevention services instead of for foster care services. That's great. So um, That's huge. 
Yeah, it's huge. And you're starting to see now a lot of work being done in Nebraska. In fact, Nebraska is one of the um, model states. Um, I don't know if that's what they call it, but they're part of a federal initiative uh, on prevention services um, to um, highlight what's working well and to um, to really uh, help improve and and prove that prevention services can work. So um, that that's oh, really a huge that. honor. I love what hearing kind that. Of prevention services has Nebraska been trying with success? Well, again, this is a little bit out of my out of my area of expertise, but um, oh, two or three years ago, um, they started a, an initiative. Um, with uh, it's a public-private partnership um, called Bring Up Nebraska, and they've been working on creating these um, community collaboratives across the state. Um, some of them are made up of multiple counties. Some of them are just single counties, depending on population um, and geography. But uh, each local community, um, each local collaborative has gotten together and kind of come up with their own um, protocols. And uh, this is to prevent kids from entering the system. So if there's a, a child or a family that's at risk, they can be referred to their local collaborative um, and they can be provided services like, um, you know, food pantries, they can um, housing assistance, utility assistance, <clears throat> things like that, concrete supports that can help them get through, um, you know, a rough patch that they're having. And, you know, then the um, family can continue to work with that local collaborative um, if there are longer term needs. But then there's no need to bring them into the system uh, on a neglect basis um, because they were not able to meet you know, the basic needs. Right. That's huge. What is, so, you know, it's really easy in the whole foster care system to see the stories that are shocking and sad and cracks and failures. Um, what would you say that historically in your experience, you know, um, what, what goes well? What goes well that's like kind of unsung? Well, like I said uh, before, uh, the majority of families do get reunified when the children are removed. Um, you know, parent or parents are willing to participate in services. Um, oftentimes there's uh, individual and family therapy. Um, there might be some family support services to help with budgeting, to help um, uh, find uh, safe and stable housing, to help uh, fill out job applications, or perhaps get into a, a education or training program. Uh, so, I, you know, that uh, works. Those kinds of services work in uh, a majority of the cases. I think another thing that Nebraska can really be proud of is that about 95 to 96% uh, of the children who are involved in the child welfare system are living in a family-like setting. 
which means um, they're in a foster home, they're in their own home, they're in a relative's home or a kinship home. They're not in a shelter. They're not in a group home or a residential treatment center. So um, we do really, really well. We're, we're uh, one of the best in the nation uh, in that area. We don't rely on group care uh, in our state. So that's something we can be really proud of. Also, another thing I think over the last few years um, is that we have brought a lot of uh, kids and youth back from out of state. We don't have uh, the numbers of kids living in residential treatment centers and group homes out of state that we used to. Um, and, uh, you know, the solution for that has really been connecting those kids with family, with relatives. I think that's another area that Nebraska does pretty well at uh, compared with the rest of the country. Um, seeking out relatives and kin uh, for placement options when children have to be removed from their families. I am glad to hear there are some sunshine spots where we're leading the nation and also that we're, we get to be a leading state on innovative prevention programs. And, you know, I, there's a lot of bad, but you know, it's not all bad. And I like, I like to hear that. That's great. So I have, we have two questions that we always ask our guests before we send them off back into the world. And the first question is, how can people get involved? And there's maybe two ways to think about that question. Maybe um, if they're interested in um, advocating a position on the St. Francis contract, which is currently in a renegotiation, and the other way they might get involved is helping the children of Nebraska as they're in, you know, families are in a moment of crisis. Sure. So um, the uh, with regard to the uh, the Eastern Service Area contract, the St. Francis contract, uh, for people who have concerns about that, I would recommend that you contact your state senator and uh any senator on the Health and Human Services Committee. Um, that's the committee that is uh, that that heard the briefing and um, has the uh, jurisdiction, if you will, to address this. And there are some bills uh, that have been introduced um, in the session this year dealing with Eastern Service Area um, issues. So that's one way. Um, you know, another issue if you're interested in uh, talking to your senator about is the procurement process in Nebraska and um, how that does not work well for these types of service contracts where we're awarding um, these type of service contracts to the lowest bidder. Um, if folks are interested in uh, getting involved in um, child welfare in general. There are a couple of um, recommendations, suggestions that I, I can make. The Foster Care Review Office does have 53 local foster care review boards that meet across the state to review individual children's cases. Um, the boards meet monthly. They are made up of citizen volunteers. Um, and we can always use more volunteers. We have right around 300 volunteers currently. Uh, we have 
have room for up to about 350. So um, this uh, past year, 2020 has been hard on a lot of our volunteers. Um, uh, so, you know, we can always use um, a few more good people who are interested in helping kids out. Another option is uh, to volunteer for your local CASA program. CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. And uh, as a CASA volunteer, you'll be trained and then paired with an individual child um, or sibling strip. Uh, and you'll be able to uh, get to know that child and advocate for that child in court um, on a regular basis. So. That's another opportunity. Some people like the more hands-on work. Some people more like the oversight work. Um, and I'm sure there are plenty of other ways to get involved as well. I would contact um, <clears throat> your local child placing agency. They may have volunteer opportunities as well. Or you might wanna become a licensed foster parent. I will put a couple links in the show notes for how to do some of those things. Um, is there a website of just the foster care review office where you can sign up to be on a board or like put in your resume or is that? Yes. Yes. Okay. You can just Google uh, foster care review office, uh, Nebraska foster care review office, or um, the website is fcro.nebraska.gov. Great. I will put that in the show notes so people don't have to Google if they don't want to. I'll Google for you. It's fine. <laughs> and then our final question. Um, what are you reading? Should we also read it too? Tell us what's um, going on. Absolutely. I am doing a uh, uh, reading challenge. Read 21 minutes a day in 2021. I've April is a librarian, um, so she's very excited to hear about your book challenge. <laughs> okay, good, good. And the book I'm currently reading is called The Black Friend on Being a Better White Person by Frederick Joseph. And um, I, it's, it's uh, a fairly fast read. I'm almost done with it. Um, it's a great complement to the book I just finished, which is How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, it's a great compliment to that book, um, and um, I would recommend it to everybody. Awesome. I'm going to put those books. We have a section on the Seeing Red website. If you click on Fight Back, you'll one of the places you can click on that is our book list, and we have a pod recommendation, and we also have an anti-racism list of books that we recommend. Um, and there's all kinds of other book lists on there too. So I'm going to add both of those to our pod list and I will add them both to the anti-racist reading list based on Great. your recommendation. Great. Well, thank Monica. you so much for coming. <laughs> thank you. That was really enlightening and you took a long time to help us. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you do. Absolutely. Oh, your well, service is so appreciated. Well, I really enjoy it. So I couldn't imagine doing anything else. You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska, Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at SeeingRedNE or contact us via email at SeeingRedNE at ProtonMail.com. Thank you.